I don't know how you picture the work of Satan in the lives of believers. Maybe you think about his direct attacks and things like opposition or oppression or persecution. And it's true, he often comes against God's people head on and seeks to destroy them. And we can see that in our world today. But we also need to remember that Satan comes to us in much more subtle ways, as I've just seen. He comes with a friendly smile. He comes with a a soft suggestion. Just gently questioning God's will. Just slightly twisting God's word. Feeding into our, our doubts and our fears. Leading us just step by step away from God's word and God's truth. And if we're not careful that this can have such a dangerous impact on our lives. This is what Paul was confronting in the church in Corinth. The teachers who had infiltrated this church, they claimed to love and to follow God. They claimed that they were willing and working to help this church live for God. But Paul knew that despite how it looked or how they sounded, in reality, these guys were serving Satan. And so in this next session of Second Corinthians, Paul describes the features of these false teachers. And I think he describes them so that we can recognise them and so we can reject them. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 15. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness. But you're already doing that. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. 
And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I think we're more familiar, <coughs> excuse me, more familiar with the negative connotations of jail around jealousy. That kind of jealousy, the anxious, insecure, angry resentment against someone for being more successful or more loved. And the church in Corinth, they had a problem with that kind of jealousy. In his first letter to them, Paul said to them, since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So we need to avoid this kind of jealousy in every aspect of our lives. Because it's always destructive. And it doesn't belong in our lives as followers of Jesus. That's because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. So we need to avoid that kind of jealousy. But there is a different kind of jealousy. Paul says here in verse 2, I'm jealous with, for you with a godly jealousy. That's the kind of jealousy that comes from love. In situations where the exclusiveness of a relationship is necessary. I think we'll see how that applies to marriage. The love between a husband and a wife is a jealous love. Because it's a love that shouldn't be shared with anybody else. That intimacy and depth of two people becoming one should only be enjoyed between a husband and and his wife. So that kind of jealous love is a right kind of jealous love. But this also applies to a relationship with God. Exodus chapter 34 says this, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's because the love and the worship and the admiration that we have for God rightly belongs to God alone. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise and our complete and undivided love. So we would be wrong to give that love to anybody or anything else. Just reminded me that uh, actually a misunderstanding of that was one of the reasons why Oprah Winfrey, I remember reading of this, Oprah Winfrey decided to kind of abandon her, her Christian background. Because she misunderstood this idea of God being a jealous God. But it's right that our love for God should be reserved for only Him. 
And this is why the, the false teachers in Corinth were so dangerous. They were trying to pull the hearts of the people in this church away from God. Now some people think that Paul is picturing himself as a best man or a matchmaker here in this little section. But I think it seems better to see Paul as the the father of the bride. In his first letter he wrote, In Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Paul was like a father to this church because he was the one who introduced them to Christ. He first came to them with the gospel. He was the one that taught them that in themselves they stood guilty before a holy God. That they couldn't get right with God no matter how much they tried. But that despite their sin, God loved them so much that he sent his son to the cross to die for their sins. And that through simple repentance and faith in Christ, they could be completely forgiven. Declared righteous in God's sight, adopted into God's family, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and lovingly held in God's hand forever. And if they did this, then they would be able to look forward to the day when Christ would come back again. To receive his bride, the church. The church that he bought with his own precious blood. And so they would be with him forever. And this is the day that Paul was working for and was longing for. See in verse 2 he says, I promised you to one husband so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul was eagerly waiting for the day when Christ would come back and this church would step into the fullness of their connection with Christ. They would see Jesus face to face. They would experience that final and full transformation and they would live forever to worship and glorify their Lord and Saviour. This is what Paul was working towards. This is what Paul longed for. But Paul knew that these false teachers that had come into that church, they were getting in the way of this. He says, verse 3, I'm afraid that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He knew that if this church let them These guys that were coming in and and trying to take over, they would pull them away from this complete and exclusive love for Jesus. They'd no longer be following Jesus. No longer be serving Him. No longer be faithfully living for Him. And no longer would they be prepared for His coming again. This was because these teachers were preaching a different message than the one that Paul had preached to them. Now, we don't know the the details of what they were saying. But Paul said here in verse 4 that they were preaching a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached. They were preaching a different spirit from the one that they'd received. A different gospel from the one that they'd accepted. 
Now these days a lot of people say it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe it sincerely. And as long as you respect everyone else's rights and everyone else's beliefs. So as long as you just hold on to your beliefs and let everybody else hold on to their beliefs and don't bother them, then you're fine. But that's not what the Bible says. When Peter and John were challenged about the message that they were preaching by the Jewish Sanhedrin, they confidently declared that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They believed that there was only one way to be right with God. One way to stand accepted by Him. One way to get into God's family. One way to get to heaven. And that wasn't something that they just made up. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way to be forgiven, the only way to be made right with God is through faith in Christ. And so these other teachers who'd come in, they were preaching a false gospel. They were preaching a message that really isn't a gospel at all because it wasn't good news, because it wouldn't lead to salvation. Because it wasn't pointed to Jesus. And that's why Paul says that their end will be what their actions deserve. Because of the twisting of God's truth and distorting of the gospel, these false teachers were going to face judgment. And that is true for all who preach a false gospel. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. The church in Galatia were also facing people who were coming in and trying to twist and and distort the word of God and lead them astray into religious actions in order to be right with God. And Paul said this to them. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. That's how serious it is. So today, we're not here to set ourselves up as the judge and jury of everybody else. We're not here to go down through the list of everybody who would stand up in church or every church, every kind of church and say, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, we're right, they're right, or whatever. That's not what we're here to do. Because we can leave those people in God's hands. Knowing that ultimately the decision is his. And those who preach a false gospel, God will deal with them. So we don't need to judge them. We don't need to condemn them. But what we do need to do is to guard against their influence in our lives and in the lives of those that we're responsible for and those that we care for. Because this false teaching can have a serious impact on those who accept it. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because it's so subtle. These false teachers, they were preaching a different gospel, a different Jesus. But the crazy thing is many of these Christians in Corinth didn't even know it. 
They didn't even recognize her. That's because false teachers can be difficult to recognize. Verse 13 of our reading says this, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. You know, if these men had come in and just stood up in front of the church and said, Look guys, forget all about Jesus. See that Bible? Throw it in the bin. Just listen to us. I don't think anybody would have listened to them. I don't think any of them would have given them any time at all. But instead they came pretending to be apostles of Jesus. And they preached just a subtly changed, a subtly altered, but a significantly altered message. And so this church in Corinth was in danger of being deceived just as Eve was deceived by the servant's cunning. Goes back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent came to tempt Eve, he didn't attack Eve head on with a rejection of God. Instead, he just subtly questioned her and twisted God's commands. He minimized the cost of disobedience and raised and promised that they would be blessed by God-like knowledge if she followed his advice. And this is one of the strategies of Satan. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. He offers satisfaction to us. But he always disappoints. He promises life to the full, but he always destroys. He comes claiming to bring light and life, but instead brings darkness and death. Jesus said about him, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so if Satan's strategy is to pull us away from God's will through lies, through deceit, through half-truths, then we shouldn't be surprised if those who preach a false gospel can initially look and and sound so good. They can sound as if they're bringing something good to us. That's what Paul said. He says, it is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. I really don't think those guys who'd come into this church in Corinth, I don't think they thought of themselves as serving Satan. No, the Bible doesn't say that. But I, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if they were coming in thinking that they were serving God. But they weren't. They might have been sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They were, as Paul says to Timothy, they were deceiving and being deceived. They were like blind guides leading the blind. Thinking that they're doing good, but actually leading people away from God's truth. So what this means is that we need to be extremely careful. We mustn't just look on the surface of things. 
We mustn't be taken in by charisma or charm or impressive teaching or impressive ministry or impressive miracles or power or impact. Instead, we need to test everything. Holding on to the good and avoiding every kind of evil, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. We need to check everything that we are taught to see if it is consistent with the gospel that Paul preached. To see if it's consistent with what the other apostles said. To see if it's consistent with God's word. We need to hold on to the truth of of Jesus. And we need to guard against all those who will try and lead us astray. And we do this by following the example of the Bereans. When Paul preached to them, they were commended because they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. We must do the same. And reject anything that doesn't match what God has said in his word. That's why I would encourage you to get your Bible out on a Sunday morning and open it up and read it. To make sure that what is being said in church is true. is consistent with God's word. Or in Bible studies. Or when you're listening to somebody on the internet. Or, or, or on the TV. Get your Bible out and check it out. To see there if it's consistent with God's word. Because if it's not, whoever they are, however they look, whatever, whatever impact they can have, however many people they follow them, if it is not consistent with God's word, they're not true. They're not telling the truth. And they're leading people astray. So maybe we shouldn't be too hard on these Corinthians for accepting these false teachers. They were deceitful. They were difficult to recognise. But then on the other hand, I think their attitude to Paul it should have been a red flag to them. You know when you see something and you can't really put your finger on what's wrong, but you see just how they react in a certain situation, you say, there's something wrong with that. They should have done that with how they treated Paul. As we've seen, they despised Paul because they thought that he was inferior to them in their abilities and their power. As a result, Paul felt kind of pushed into defending himself. And his ministry, he says in verse 5 and 6, I do not think I'm in least inferior to these super apostles, in inverted commas. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. Whether these men spoke better than Paul did or not, that was beside the point. The content of what they said was far more important than how they said it. And in that case, Paul's knowledge of God could not be criticised. But there was another reason why they despised Paul. And that was because of his attitude to money. Money is one of those ones that is the evidence of how we treat money is is the evidence of what's going on in our hearts, isn't it? One of the outward flows of what comes from our heart. And Paul had already hinted at the fact that these false teachers took money from the Corinthians. He said in chapter 2, verse 17 of this letter, we do not sell the word of God for profit as many other people do. 
So these false teachers, it seems, they were following the culture of their day. Where wealthy benefactors would give money to travelling philosophers who then teach under their patronage. So they came to this church in the wealthy city of Corinth, expecting to be financially rewarded for their work. Handsomely rewarded for their work. And there are, of course, many pastors and teachers in the world today who also expect the same. Who expect to be able to get rich on the basis of their ministry. But Paul refused to follow this convention. He stood against that culture. Instead, he often supported himself through his own manual work. He said to the Ephesians, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Whenever Paul went to an area, he often worked there as a tent maker. That was his job, that was his trade. And so he often looked for opportunities to use that trade to support him and those who worked with him. And at other times, he got his support from other churches out with Achaia. He says in verse 9, these bro- the brothers of, uh, who came from Macedonia supplied what I need. Now why did Paul do that? Well, it isn't because it's wrong to pay somebody who's serving in your church. That's not the case. In the previous letter, in chapter 9, verse 14, Paul says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So it's not wrong to support those who are ministering to you. But Paul chose not to use that right. He chose not to take to make a, a to take uh, to be, be, be to benefit from that opportunity, and that cost Paul dearly. Not only did sometimes Paul just have to, to do without the basic, without his basic needs being met. We'll see in this next section, uh, next week, about the fact that sometimes he, he'd gone hungry, even. But he also had to face the criticism of those who didn't like the fact that he wouldn't take their money. The Corinthians, remember these wealthy Corinthians, they accused Paul of being beneath those professional teachers and preachers. And they also accused him of sinning against them. Because he wouldn't let them pay him. And even that, they accused him of not even loving them. Because he wouldn't accept their money. That's why Paul here had to reaffirm his love for them. He says, why did I not receive this money? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. So why did Paul not take this money? Well, first of all, it's because Paul wasn't greedy for money. He wasn't doing this, this work for his own gain. He wasn't in it to become rich. But also he did this because he believed that taking this money would in some way hinder the spread of the gospel. And he said in his previous letter, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He would rather go hungry, go without, suffer, rather than in any way be a barrier to somebody coming to Christ. 
And in part this was because he wanted to set his ministry apart from those who were preaching for profit. He says he wanted to continue preaching the gospel of God free of charge. He wanted to preach the gospel free of charge. Why was that? Well, the gospel is the message of God's grace. His free gift of salvation that he has paid for in full by sending his son to the cross as as we've just remembered in communion. We can't buy it. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We can't contribute to it. We can only receive it through faith in Christ. So if the gospel is the offer of God's free gift to all, then it should be offered freely to all. As Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received. Freely give. So I think we need to be very wary of those who try to use their ministry to get rich. But we also need to make sure that fundraising or money is never our motivation for ministry. It's not the motivation for seeing more people coming to church or seeing this church expand or being better at evangelism. Money should never be that motivation. That's why we don't charge for our summer camps or our kids' clubs or our other ministries. Because we're not in this to make money. And we believe that as a community of God's people, we are the ones who have been called to give generously what God has given to us so that we can share the gospel free of charge to those who desperately need to hear. So these are just some of the features of these false teachers in Corinth. Five things to remember. They are dangerous because they pull people away from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. They preach a different gospel about a different Jesus. It may sound the same at first, but if you look closely, you will see how they've distorted God's word. And so they are destined for judgment. God will deal with them. We are not in the business of condemning or judging or or trying to pull them down. That's God's job. But because they are deceitful, they can be difficult to recognize. So we need to be careful. We need to test everything that we hear, everything that we're we're tempted to accept by God's word to see if it is consistent with that. And finally, these false teachers despise selflessness because they think that godliness should be a means to financial gain. And God strongly disagrees. So I pray that God will help us to recognise And to reject all those people who will try to distort God's word. And that none of us will be pulled away from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ.